Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Here we go, Dina. Woo, yeah. This week's a, a big one. Welcome back, everyone. Another, another episode of A Little More Good. As always, we're excited to bring you today's episode. This one, I'm, I mean, I'm very excited for every week's episode, but uh, I'm especially excited today because mm-hmm. we had such uh, enlightening, myth-busting, kind of nutrient-informing, life-changing conversation with, uh, who do we talk with, Dean? Man, none other than the man, Simon Hill himself. Oof. Yes. The proof. Definitely. Uh, really, really grateful for Simon. Um, he is just like a wealth of knowledge when it comes to creating like a, just a healthy plant-based diet. And it's not just like, you know, an Instagram kind of person who's like, you know, spouting off information that they might have learned secondhand. Like this guy goes deep and can cite the research studies and reads the paper. Like he does the work and then brilliantly presents it in such like a palatable, pun intended, way for for the average person to like see the proof of how good it is to just be on a plant-based diet. And so, um, yeah, he's a real leader in the plant-based movement um, it, for fitness, for health, for longevity, for wellness. Um, and just like living fully. And it was just so awesome to sit down. And we threw all kinds of questions at him that we had that we knew like our listeners might have. Um, and so, yeah, it was just a, it was a really fun, fun conversation to line up. We kind of rambled through six pillars from the proof. Uh, the pillars being eat, move, recover, align, think. And we threw in environment as well. So mm-hmm. we added a seventh one. I think that's seven. Um, everything from... You know, what foods to eat, supplements, uh, time-restricted eating and fasting, to meditation and stretching. Uh, Simon Hill is also a, a celebrated physiotherapist that's yeah. worked with professional athletes and, you know, developed apps and done all sorts of incredible things. So we kind of navigated the whole mind, body, soul of wellness 
Um, it's a conversation that I'm going to go back to, to, to relearn myself. And, and as Dean mentioned, his, his podcast, his book, the information he shares, I think for me, he is the, my, my guide, my go-to source for all things health and wellness. And like you mentioned, he just makes it so approachable and understandable because I think sometimes the truth can get lost in the science and uh, it's hard for us normal folks to understand those medical terms and those scientific terms. But uh, Simon breaks it down and makes, uh, makes health and wellness and how to live a healthy and well life approachable and understandable for, for all of us. Mm-hmm. Medical and non-medical folks. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. As, as you said, host of the Proof podcast, uh, author of the uh, book that just came out this year, The Proof is in the Plants. And um, yeah, just uh, and like charming, classic, charming Australian. Yes. Like, so great. Yes. Yeah. He navigates the whole conversation with compassion and grace and, and just was so generous with his time and all that he is able to share. Yeah. So with, that, with that charming accent. That yeah, of course. Yeah. So we're, we're obviously so excited to, to share this episode with you and um, to, to pass on the learning and the enlightenment that uh, he shared with us. And um, this is a good one. This is a good one to, to dive into, to share with a friend. You know, we all have those people who are like plant curious or even skeptical of like, oh, how can you perform athletically on a plant-based diet? And like we dive into that. Simon himself is, uh, is a, a pretty strong athlete. And so, you know, not sacrificing performance and recovery or anything like that. And so we cover, cover all kinds of those avenues. So this is a great one to share for, yeah, just uh, the person who's looking to level up their wellness, their health, their performance, and backed by some scientific knowledge is the best. Here we go. Simon Hill, everyone. Yeah. All right, all right. Welcome, Simon. We're so excited to be on the Zoomverse with you, uh, recording this uh, A Little More Good podcast. Uh, thanks so much for making the time to connect with us today. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, for enjoying me. I've heard a lot about you guys uh, through Dr. Matthew Nagra and, and even Rich. We, we traded a few texts before, so he said to say hello, and he was exciting that I was coming on to, to chat to you guys. Amazing. Very cool. Amazing. Yeah. Say hi back to Rich for us. <laughs> yeah. For his yeah. Canadian uh, groupies over here. That's <laughs> Him, we pitched him the idea that we could be like his, you know, like Brogan and Skolnick when he's up here, you know. But uh, I can see that. I can see that. Leaves with those guys, so yeah. he's, he's very loyal. Yeah. Oh, well, we might need a few people to uh, get into his direct messages and and suggest that to him. <laughs> there, there, we go. Go. there we go. There we go. That's right. Well, we're super excited to talk with you. Obviously, um, Zach and I have been been fans of yours, following your work. Um, you know, even just before the, the conversation with you here, we were talking about how you uh, are someone who is so well-versed in the science of plant-based eating and lifestyle, and yet you make it like so readily accessible to kind of like the every, everyday person. Um, even, even your book, um, The Proof is in the Plants, like when you pick it up, it's, it's a good-sized piece of literature, but reading through it, um, it's so accessible, or, or as we kind of like jokingly said, it's very digestible, right? And uh, maybe, maybe a bad pun, but um, yeah, so we're super excited to get get into, you know, all that you have to offer in terms of your wisdom and your knowledge and know-how around creating like a healthy lifestyle that's situated on, you know, what goes into our bodies to power, fuel, and, and feed us. So 
Yeah, well, uh, thank you for that. It's very, very kind words. I, I guess even in, in writing that book and, and you know, all the communication I do, that that sort of fine line of trying to provide good quality information but make it accessible is something that I'm always sort of tiptoeing around because I feel that uh, a lot of people are very confused and a lot of that is due to messages that are absolute and oversimplification and so for me a lot of the my time and energy goes into how can i get some of this deeper more nuanced information but deliver in a way where it is actually interesting people can engage with it and then hopefully people feel more confident with the food choices that they're making and then the next time that they see some crazy headline or something on social media they don't feel so alarmed and, and or derailed. Right. I think it's so perfect. Like I think a book like yours um, is exactly what's needed for, for the plant-based movement, for, for the global movement of hopefully healing this planet that we live on. Um, you know, when I first st started on my own path in, in plant-based living, um, you know, the references that I would share with people that were interested, you know, it was, you know, the China study, uh, which is a great book, obviously, but it's, it's not uh, easy for everybody to comprehend. Or even, mm -hmm. you know, recently, like uh, How Not to Die from Michael Greger, I'd be like, that's got all the answers. Just like get this book, whatever you're curious about. And it's an amazing book and it's an amazing resource. But for someone that is maybe brand new to these ideas, it's, it's really hard to comprehend. And I think um, I've shared your book with some people that are are new to this lifestyle or, or curious to it. And it's like, you know, great. Here's the problem. Here's the solution. Here's how I do it. It's so easy to break down. So for those listening, if you haven't uh, gone to Amazon or your local bookstore and already picked up your, your, uh, your copy, here's, here's your time to hit pause and, and do so. So That's right. thank you uh, from uh, your plant-based friends in Canada for uh, creating content that uh, all of us can benefit from. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That means a lot. So what, what inspired you to take, you know, the information, you know, and not just, not just create like another study or like kind of clickbait article, but to, to strap down and like do the work of, of creating a, a volume, a book like that, that is, you know, rich, rich with great information, but also like quite accessible to, to anyone who picks it up quite, quite honestly. I think a lot of that goes back to my kind of DNA and, and, um, my childhood growing up, I was exposed to science. My dad is a 40-year or 30-something-year professor now. Um, did his PhD 40-odd years ago in physiology and has published heavily in a lot of the major journals looking at risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And he has been interested in deep, deep sort of mechanisms for most of his career you know, under a microscope. I'd often go in and spend the weekends with him. This is when I was five, six, seven. He'd be walking around with his uh, Dr. Hill kind of uh, white lab coat on and I'd see him jumping on and off the, the microscopes and we actually have some good photos of these and I'd play around and he'd show me things under the microscope and uh, I saw so the, the, the way in which science can help us with reducing uncertainty in the world. I saw it as a really uh, interesting method to objectively test our intuition or our hypotheses. And so I learned that from a, 
a very young age and developed a kind of deep appreciation for science. So to answer your question, which is, you know, why do I approach things perhaps with a little bit more nuance than you might see sometimes on social media or in the headlines? And, and that's because I, I really, really do appreciate science and I want to represent it properly and I want other people to actually to love science too. And and I think right now there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of uh, um, lost trust in science. And I'm not so sure that that's fair. I think a lot of that is based on the way that science is communicated and sure that science is not perfect. And there have been some issues with you know, funding source and some biases that can come through the scientific process. But it is the best tool that we have to answer a number of different questions and uh, while it's not perfect and, and can certainly be improved, I want people to also really appreciate that method in the way that I do. Amazing. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it is. Like, I know listening to your podcast um, and hearing you share on other other pods and stuff as well, and of course, of course, the, the written output, it does. It, it makes it so that you appreciate you know, the hard work that's been done like in the lab or by collecting, you know, data from the sample size of however many people and things that they're eating. And, and especially when it's geared towards your health, like it's hard yeah. to appreciate something that says, Hey, here's something that can help you, whether it be with, you know, uh, inherited like hereditary kind of issues that you might be facing down the road or how to just be a healthier, happier person, a better athlete, whatever it is, it makes it accessible and meaningful to mm -hmm you know, someone who might not be able to wade through a scientific study to get like the understanding of what. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, and I think when it comes to say nutrition, for example, I, you know, speaking to a lot of different people in, within my family or friends, I came to this kind of conclusion that many people just thought, well, there are so many conflicting ideas out there that science just must not have worked things out. And, and I, I thought that was really interesting because ultimately I think if you land in that position, if, if you are exposed to all these different ideas that are very, very conflicting, you know, I think the natural response is to kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, well, does it even matter if I change my diet here? Because nobody is agreeing on anything. And actually I, I often say uh, I, I don't think that science is confused at all. Um, I think it looks confusing when you go into the bookstore and you see lots of books that have been written uh, with a lot of promises and absolutes coming from very different angles. And when you see one headline this week and one next week, that is uh, very conflicting. But actually, these, these conflicting, quote-unquote conflicting uh, studies are not really conflicting. They're usually explainable. And if you get into the study, you know, if we're talking about a particular food, often someone says, is it good or bad? Well, I say, for who? How much are you talking about? What's the exposure level? What dietary pattern? If they're eating that food, what would they be taking out of their diet? Uh, are we talking about a kid? Are we talking about an athlete? Are we talking about an elderly? And, and I think when you hear that, you quickly appreciate that there is much more nuance than often you know, people are, are kind of leading, leading you to, to believe. So 
um, that's another kind of, uh, I guess, motivating factor for me with everything that I'm doing is to say, hold on, I understand that it may look like there is no consensus and that nobody is agreeing, but that's not actually true. And within the science, while it's not black and white, there, there is very clear trends, patterns and characteristics and things that we can grab a hold of with confidence and, and move in that direction and know that we will be improving our health and, and lowering our risk of certain diseases. Very cool. Um, yeah, I think sometimes, you know, people like headlines and they, they will attach themselves to some interpretation that somebody made somewhere and, you know, things spiral quickly with social media. Um, but before we, we'd like to kind of, you know, zoom into a lot of the, the nitty gritty of, of health and wellness from a perspective of eating and moving and recovering, but, um, and kind of, I think you're somebody that embodies, um, you know, wellness and health from the whole mind, body, soul kind of spectrum. But before we kind of zoom in, I thought maybe we could zoom out and you could kind of just kind of share like a mission statement, so per se, of like why why you believe uh, we should go plant-based. Mm -hmm. That's a big question. And there are a number of, of reasons. So in the book, I kind of create the, uh, I separate health, human health, with planetary health and then i touch on animal welfare within the planetary health uh, com component um, and i think these are all very important things for us to be considering um, and but i like to to consider them somewhat separately and then have a conversation about well when we when we have considered these separately what what does that look like and um, let the individual kind of decide what's meaningful for them and, and the level of commitment that they're looking for um, and perhaps what's achievable based on, on whatever circumstances they find themselves in at that time. Uh, so from, from a human health point of view, and I'll keep it surface level for now and you can let me know what you want to dial in on, but it's, it's very, very clear that dietary patterns that are low in saturated fat are high in fiber, have a good amount of unsaturated fats and are low in ultra-processed foods, which by default automatically becomes these very, very plant-rich diets. And you'll see lots of studies out there. It could be on a portfolio diet, which actually came out of Canada, which is pretty much a completely whole food plant-based diet. It could be the DASH diet. It could be a vegetarian diet. It could be a whole food plant-based diet. There are a number of, of studies clinical intervention studies that show these dietary patterns shift cholesterol into a favorable direction. They have a tremendous effect on your blood pressure, lowering your blood pressure being uh, a, a major a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, for having a heart attack or, or a stroke. Um, they help improve your body weight, which then has a flow-on effect to improving blood glucose control, to improving inflammation. And so we, we have a, a huge amount of data from various research labs all over the world that converges and shows that eating in this way shifts these risk factors in your favor. You know, if we want to improve our health span, which is the number of years we live throughout our life uh, with a high quality of life, not, not being affected by disease, then we, it's very clear eating in this manner is, is going to help us do that. Um, and then at the same time, we have longer 
long-term studies that aren't just looking at changes in, say, cholesterol or, or, or blood pressure, but are, are looking you know, at populations perhaps that have already had a heart attack, what happens when you get them to eat in this way, and, and, and you see significant reductions in, in future cardiovascular uh, events, um, and I haven't even gone into the, the large observational studies, which are a component of this. Often people uh, kind of want to discount the, the utility of observational research. But the fact that of the matter is that it's near impossible to run a randomized controlled trial for 30, 40 years. And we do have this collective pool of observational data that supports what I just said we've seen in, in clinical intervention studies and shows people that are eating in this manner that I've described have significantly lower level, lower risk of developing type 2 diabetes, Alzheimer's dementia, fatty liver disease, cardiovascular disease, the list really goes on. So um, if we're interested in improving health span in Canada, in North America, Australia, countries like this, where uh, it's very clear that people are living with disease now for, for longer than ever before, um, then this is a, a critical piece of, of kind of shifting health span in, in, in the right direction. Mm. Are there, Simon, are there studies that have been done that you know of um, in terms of people who have lived, like you just mentioned, live with these diseases for maybe years, managing them perhaps with medications which is often the case right especially in countries like like ours in canada and where, where um healthcare is more accessible it's not the same expense as perhaps our our friends uh in the united states um so people live long term you know addressing these issues with medication blood pressure mm -hmm. hypertension whatever it might be even diabetes versus um, studies or information that would point to reversal or a significant decrease in those um, symptoms from those types of like lifestyle diseases simply by changing like what's on our plate. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, there, there, there are quite a, a few clinical intervention studies out there. I'm not sure, so sure it becomes a medication versus diet. I think a lot of these are when someone say has established uh, heart disease, a lot of the, the dietary intervention studies are an add-on um, to, to the various uh, medications that they're, they're also taking. Um, but probably the most, I guess, rigorous trial that exists is the Leon Diet Heart Study. And this was a secondary prevention study. So what that means, if anyone comes, comes across that term, secondary prevention, because um, often that gets thrown around. And um, I realize that actually in, with, with the podcast episodes that I do, part of what I do is try and slow down and translate some of this terminology that um, often gets forgotten. So secondary prevention just means that this person has already had a cardiovascular event. Rather, as opposed to primary prevention would be someone that has no history of cardiovascular disease and we get them into a study. So in the Leon Diet Heart Study, this, um, this was looking at a very plant-predominant Mediterranean-style intervention and uh, they randomized uh, these folks that had already had a cardiovascular event. Study went on for about four or five years. I mentioned earlier, it's difficult in these trials to get very, very long-term data. They're, they're very, very um, resource intensive, uh, expensive to conduct. Um, but overall, what happened with the diet was it was less red meat, 
there was less dairy, there was less ultra-processed foods, there was much more whole plant foods and unsaturated fats. That was what the dietary shift looked like. And those in that intervention group over that four to five year period had a 50 to 70% relative risk reduction in cardiovascular events, including cardiovascular death. So um, that's a pretty powerful uh, finding through uh, just a dietary um, intervention in that study. Then, uh, you know, uh, looking at another kind of um, disease, there are quite a few clinical studies that have looked at type 2 diabetes. And I will say, I think a lot of the diet tribes fight over type 2 diabetes. And uh, you'll see some people saying it's all about low-carb. And we can go into low-carb because low-carb doesn't necessarily mean animal-based that's often a confusing point. You can actually do plant-based, low-carb if you want it. Um, and then uh, you'll have other people sort of arguing, well, if you want to go into remission or reverse type 2 diabetes, uh, whole food plant-based diet is the best way to go. Um, and there are studies that actually sit on both sides. There are some studies that show low-carb diets um, can be beneficial for folks with type 2 diabetes, um, at least to get improved blood glucose control. And then there are some studies looking at whole food plant-based diets. And I think over the last three or four years, what's been born out of the the data is that if you have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, by and large, the most important thing that you can do is lose weight. And if you can lose 10 to 15% of your body weight, a lot of folks can get into remission and can no, will no longer need to take insulin. Some of that depends on how long they've had type 2 diabetes for. So if someone has had type 2 diabetes for a very, very long time and their pancreas, which produces insulin, has just really burnt out, then it can be hard to get into remission and never require insulin. But if someone has has only had it for, for sort of four or five years, then with that sort of, quote-unquote, I guess, aggressive weight loss, losing 10 to 15% of body weight, a large percentage of people will go into remission and uh, it'll, it will be as if they never had type 2 diabetes. So that can be a really, really good um, outcome. And, and often people then say to me, well, what's the best diet for losing weight? Um, you can let me know if you want to zoom in on that at any stage. But um, those d- type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease are definitely the two disease states where we have the most data looking at clinical trials with dietary interventions and seeing seeing improvements. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. All right. I, I feel like there's so many directions that we're like excited to go with. So like when you, when you talk in one thing, it's like, okay, this direction, that direction. So we're going to do the best to make our most of the time. Um, in your book, you talk about the eight plant-proof principles. And I think they're like, I think if everyone just followed those principles, like that's that section alone is is like a great manual to living a, a healthy lifestyle. Um, so one that I'm I'm always really interested in because there's such an obsession with protein is mm. um, when you talk about being fiber obsessed and protein aware. Uh, maybe we can zoom in there a little bit, and then we can touch on some of the other principles, like the nutrients of focus, and and uh, a few other of the ones before we go in some other directions. Sure. So fiber and and protein. Ninety five percent of 
folks in most Western countries, so um, Canadians and not those in uh, America and Australia, are not consuming the recommended amount of fiber. And what's interesting with fiber is we actually see a very uh, dose-dependent reduction in risk of many chronic diseases. So the more fiber that you're eating and the, the data kind of just peters out at about 50 grams a day because there's no one really that we can see over that or not a large enough uh, sort of sample size. But you just see this line going going straight up in terms of risk reduction, um, which is amazing. So this is a low-hanging fruit for our communities. 95% of people are failing to hit the recommended amount of fiber, which is about 30 to 35 grams per day. Um, and there are a number of different mechanisms as to how that is improving health. Some of those involve helping reduce cholesterol, helping uh, improve blood glucose control, but also uh, acting as food for the trillions of, of gut um, bugs in your large intestine, and there's a number of um, different metabolites that are produced through that process, which then go into your bloodstream and have beneficial effects around the body on your cardiovascular system, nervous system, mood. Um, that's you know uh, a tremendous area of research that has over the last ten years really blossomed, and, and we're we're going to continue to see more and more from that. But what we've seen over the last ten years is now a much deeper appreciation for how deleterious a fiber deficient diet is hmm. and uh, i'm sure you guys are familiar with dr will bolsowitz he wrote a book fiber fueled on this exact topic so if someone was thinking hey i haven't really been thinking about fiber so much and i'd like to go right down um the rabbit hole and learn about it that's a, that's a great resource for someone and um you know he talks very specifically about how fiber modulates the microbiome and these different metabolites like short-chain fatty acids that get produced that affect our physiology. Um, so I think that people do need to be fiber-obsessed. And just to take a, a kind of broader view, if, I, if someone says to me, what's one thing that I should just focus on? Because um, I often, you know, and, and you, you will appreciate this, that if people are trying to make five, ten changes at once, it can it can be very overwhelming, and often you just end up going back to what you were doing. Um, so I, I I think counting the number of plants that you're eating over a week and uh, unique plants, and trying to hit that thirty to thirty five grams of fiber, just focusing on those those two components, which are, are somewhat related. What that does is it automatically shifts you to a very plant-based diet no matter how you've been eating before because to get those foods in something has to come out it's going to be animal foods or ultra processed foods and it also automatically guarantees diversity mm. and so we often think of fiber as a singular compound it's not there are many 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 different types of fiber and uh, when you pick up the banana and eat the banana you will be consuming certain types of fiber that will feed certain gut bugs that have certain roles. And then when you pick up uh, an apple or you eat asparagus or potatoes or legumes, all of these contain different types of fiber. So when the, the sort of old saying of eat the rainbow, this is one of the important reasons. Um, there are many, but this is one of the important reasons why 
diversity within our diets is important. And when we are eating in a diverse manner, we're nurturing all of these different types of good gut bugs and they'll proliferate. And when they proliferate, they reward us with better health. Mm. Um, so that's the, the fiber kind of 101. And with protein, this one I say we should be protein aware. And that shouldn't be controversial, but for some reason it is. And I kind of, uh, I guess I kind of sit in the middle. There's, there's sort of uh, one side I think that exists out there, which is if you just adopt a plant-based diet, you don't have to worry about protein at all, just eat enough calories. And I used to kind of believe that, um, but now I actually think that there is some benefit in being aware, particularly if you're an athlete or if you're someone that's over the age of, say, 60, where it gets very hard to hold on to your muscle. And we know that um, having muscle and being strong in you, as, you, as you age, you know, there's a lot of talk out there right now about longevity hacks and what pill can you take. Yeah. There, there, is, there is so much more data on having a good amount of lean muscle and being strong and that being beneficial for your longevity than all of these, you know, studies being performed on certain compounds. So I like to remind people of that if you're looking for a longevity, longevity hack, having a good amount of lean muscle through your life and trying to hold on to that as you age is, is uh, really, really uh, important. And then on the, the other side of the spectrum, you've got people in the nutrition community that, will take the position that the more protein the better and let's just let's just go to sky sky high levels uh and i don't think that's supported by the best evidence we have either because i think there's a point of diminishing returns when it comes to protein so there's a sort of ceiling where you're not going to get any more improvements in your performance and it starts to come at a cost because again you want to if you're ramping up those foods you're having to remove something else and you're particularly if you're ramping up that protein from animal protein. And this is why I think the research consistently shows high intakes of animal protein are associated with higher risk of disease is that that animal protein, unlike plant protein, as you're eating more of that animal protein, you're also getting exposed to more saturated fat and you're not getting any fiber with it or phytochemicals. Whereas there are quite a few papers out there now showing that actually high, high intakes of plant protein are not associated with increased risk of disease as opposed to what the animal protein studies ha have looked at. So I think I would summarize that by where you get your protein from matters. And uh, the, the, the average person right now is getting 85% of their protein per day from animal protein, just 15% from plant protein. Really, we should be at a bare minimum flipping that around um, and that would be a great starting point. Yeah. So, okay, two questions on the protein because uh, even though we should be fiber-obsessed, people always want to talk about protein. Um, so two questions there. If someone's wanting to get their protein from a whole food plant-based diet, uh, what are some protein-dense foods that they can focus on? And uh, likewise, if someone is wanting to supplement um, and add a protein uh, powder to their diet, whether they're 
weightlifting or, or busy in athletics or just looking to have some convenience in their life, is there a plant protein that um, you recommend, whether that's pea protein or hemp or a combination of, of you know, various sources? Um, I'll just kind of leave it to you from there. Yeah, no, great, great question. Uh, so I should also say um, often when talking about these different sources and someone that's looking for a higher protein intake, they are also interested in how much they, they need. And uh, I think quite consistently the research shows 1.6 grams per kilogram for an athlete that's looking to completely optimize uh, muscle protein synthesis and build new muscle and develop strength. You want to hit that threshold consistently on a, on a daily basis. And in, in fact, what we know now is uh, there was this idea that animal protein was much better than plant protein for building muscle. And I think everyone will be uh, well aware of that. Now it's, it's, it's actually very clear in the data that the first thing that's most important and so much more important than even before we talk about protein is the stimulus so resistance training is by far the most important thing for building muscle. Forget protein for the moment. Protein is important, but it's so much less important than having the stimulus. And a good, a good way for people to think about this is I could say to you, eat, eat five grams of protein per kilogram. And if you're not doing any training, if you're not lifting a weight in the gym, we all know you're not just going to build muscle nothing happens. Right. So you, you really need the, the stimulus. And then that 1.6 grams per kilo, it's been established that whether that's from animal protein, plant protein, or a mix, it doesn't really matter. Once you've hit that, that threshold, which is a, a relatively high protein intake, where you're getting it from doesn't matter in terms of the muscle protein synthesis response. I would argue it does matter for your broader health context. Um, but that's you know what we've kind of spoken about earlier. So um, where would you get that from? Okay, so uh, legumes are going to be your food group where most of your protein comes from. Of course, you'll still be getting protein through all of the, the plant foods. They actually all contain amino acids, the building blocks for, for protein, but most of it will come through the legume food group. So uh, this will be your tofu, tempeh, uh, lentils, chickpeas, black beans, pinto beans, all of the different uh, legumes that are out there, but also legume pastas can be a really good way to increase protein content. And then on top of those, uh, there's also foods like seitan, uh, mycoprotein is another option. There's a, a brand out there called corn that's now doing vegan um, uh, products as well, which is really high protein, high fiber. Um, that's Microprotein is actually, um, there's a guy called Paul Shapiro in America. He owns a company called Better Meat Co. Um, and he has a, he has a podcast and he talks a lot about this, but microprotein is this very novel protein where they use a particular type of microbe, fungi microbe, and they feed that, um, those microbes with plant-based foods and they produce this really, really high protein, high fiber uh, product so um, people will see more of that that can be a really great way to get a lot of protein into a plant-based diet in a way that's actually very protein dense and, and what i mean by that is you can add a lot of protein without adding a lot of calories mm. which can be important for an athlete if someone's trying to hit a high protein um, intake but also let's say they're trying to uh, adjust their body composition or lose some weight as well at the same time mm. um, so you've got all those options 
That's that's myco, like as in mycology. Yes, yeah, like mush, like the the fungi kind of terminology, um, mycoprotein, and so corn is one company that does that, and then Better Meat Co. Uh, folks can look up Paul Shapiro. He wrote a book actually called Clean Meat, which is a, a really uh, interesting um, read. He, his background is uh, around um, environmental advocacy and animal advocacy. So he's been very interested in looking at all things um, alternative protein. So looking at from, from cultivated meat all the way to plant-based meats and these, these mycoprotein foods that um, are now being developed. So that's, a, that's an in- interesting product for people to look at. It also happens to be really, really rich in iron as well, which is good for some folks that, that are looking for more iron in their diet. Uh, and then the other one that I'd say, and again, this is something that I use if I'm formulating a diet for someone that wants that higher protein um, density, but doesn't have a lot of room for extra calories in their diet. They're already eating a lot of calories. It could be um, total um, TVP, the vegetable protein that I'm sure you've seen, and you can uh, work that into like a, a kind of spaghetti bolognese. I often use TVP in my own meals. I'll mix it with lentils and uh, mushrooms and walnuts, and you can create a really nice kind of mince type texture um super super protein dense um so that's you know that's a range of options and and as i said you'll still be getting protein as well from nuts and seeds and all the other foods and if someone wanted to add a protein shake uh as you asked i think uh there are a lot of good options out there now uh i tend to to find one that uses uh, pea protein and brown rice protein they often blend them together. I think that's a good idea. Uh, one of the advantages of a blended protein is you you usually get a, uh, a higher amount of the branch chain amino acids, which can be important if someone's really, really trying to optimize their, their lean muscle, but it really depends on the individual. How far in the weeds are you wanting to go here? If you're just someone that's training like myself uh, at the gym, I'm not competing in any sort of sport professionally, then I'm, I'm happy just grabbing a, a, a plant protein off the shelf that tastes good and that I actually enjoy. Um, but if you're really, really wanting to get into it, you'd want to look on the back of the package and it'll, it'll, it'll list out the, the amino acids and the amount of each. And, and what you want to see is that you're getting 25 grams of total protein in that serve and you want to look at leucine leucine is the one amino acid that we know is really important for triggering the muscle protein synthesis process and what you'd like to see is over uh usually it's um it's it's displayed in milligrams so you'd want to see 2000 milligrams uh or more of leucine in a serve um, and that, that's, a, that's going to be a really good indicator that you're dealing with a very high-quality plant protein that um, will help you achieve those goals. Right. And that would be geared more specifically to like someone who's looking to increase performance at a, like athletic ability. Not yeah. When he's like, okay, I want to make sure that I'm eating, you know, eating the rainbow and getting enough. I want to be protein aware, make sure I'm getting enough. That's- yeah you want to go deep and make sure you're getting all of those specific ones for your training needs. You could look for something with a leucine in it. 
That's right. You're, that's going to be for someone who's paying a, a lot of attention to, to what they're doing and has very specific kind of performance goals. Anyone else that's wanting to, to get a, a protein, I would say to any, anything that has pea or brown rice or pumpkin, uh, a blend is always a good idea, but find one that you, you enjoy. Um, and, you know, I think that that there is some stigma out there around protein powders, and I'm not sure that that stigma is deserved. Um, you know, I spoke earlier about when people get over the age of about 60 to 65, uh, we actually know that, that their, their, their requirement for protein actually goes up a little bit. And the reason for that is that when you get a bit older, you develop what's called anabolic resistance, which means it becomes harder to build and maintain muscle. And we know that muscle loss is associated with a shortened life as is loss of strength. So, um, you know, I actually know quite a number of people um, when they're over 60, 65, who are introducing a plant protein into a very healthy whole food plant-based diet and it just bumps them up. It gives them that extra 25, 30 grams of protein a day. They're still trying to, to keep active and do some form of exercise, but it can be very helpful in that setting because often what happens is appetite goes down a little bit. So you get this appetite reduction, yet you get an increase in the need for protein. Mm. And that can be a little bit challenging if you have a very high fiber diet. So this can be a little strategy or a tool for someone to kind of help navigate and, and optimize at that, that life stage as well. All right. So, uh, just kind of looping back to the fiber and one, one kind of fiber protein question, my kind of like golden um, triangle here. I always just add whether I'm having oatmeal or a smoothie, I just add like a couple of tablespoons of hemp chia flax. And that's my like drop it, forget it. And I feel like that's like my trio of like, you know, foods that are like taking care of my protein and fiber. So um, I feel like that's an affordable, cheap, uh, mm-hmm. And then just kind of looping back to the fiber, um, you, you shared some great examples of protein. If people are concerned that they're not fiber obsessed enough, um, what are some foods that they can add to their diet to kind of boost that focus a little bit? Sure. Uh, there's some overlap here because legumes, again, and, and I'm probably repeating myself a little bit here, but I think it's important for, for people to be conscious of, legumes are not only providing protein, but they're very rich in fiber. And that is, 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 you know, one of the reasons why plant protein is so much, um, so much more beneficial in terms of our health outcomes than, than animal protein, one of many reasons. So legumes, um, but you're going to get fiber in nuts and seeds. You just mentioned their chia seeds, they're, they're loaded with, with fiber, for example. Um, all of your fruits are going to be great sources, but um, some more so than others. Your berries are probably a little bit lighter on the, the, the fiber side. Um, all of your vegetables, your whole grains, another great source of fiber, and, and some like oats in particular have very specific types of fiber that can be very beneficial from a cholesterol point of view. Um, soy foods, so they fall within the legume um, category, but foods like edamame uh, and tempeh, they're going to be good sources of, of fiber um, as well. So really, I think if you're making the at least the foundations of your diet, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, and 
those are consistently showing up in your snacks and your meals, you'll see, you'll you'll find it very hard to be consuming less than thirty grams of fiber a day. The 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 reason why ninety five percent of people are not consuming enough fiber is because a sixty percent of the average person's calories come from ultra processed foods, and there are many. There are many, I guess, uh, problems with ultra-processed foods, but the fact that they're stripped of fiber is is one of those. Um, they're also stripped of protein. They're stripped of a lot of water, and for that reason, they're not very satiating. They're also there's a lot of uh, you know added sweeteners and sugars, which makes them very tasty. They're calorie dense. We can overeat them. Um, so we've got sixty percent of our calories coming from these fiber-poor foods that have nudged out all of these whole plant foods that are really rich in fiber and then i mentioned before 85 percent of the average person's protein is coming from animal protein and there's no fiber found in in animal foods so when you start to direct your diet create the foundation based on those food groups that i mentioned i don't think you need to be sort of focusing in on each individual food and um, counting your, your fiber. I would much prefer people just count the unique plants that they eat across the week. And you might find right now, uh, and I know this would have been the case for me, you know, 15 years ago, I was probably only eating, you know, five to 10 unique plants. And that's very easy when you just, you're, you're sort of just, um, focusing on animal protein, that's the hero of the plate, and you just have these side vegetables, the same ones that rotate through. Um, what we want to do is try and shift away from that slowly to a much more diverse diet. And if you hit that sort of 30 um, to 40 unique plants a week, which can be fun to, to play around with and, and, and track, um, and don't beat yourself up if you're starting on eight or nine because that's where most people are. Uh, when you're hitting that 30 to 40, and that includes herbs and spices, haven't mentioned those, but both fresh and dried, these these are incredible um, sources of nutrition. They're really, really, really rich in antioxidants, polyphenols. So um, when you add in those herbs and spices, it becomes quite a bit you know, more achievable to, to hit that 40 mark over the week. But um, that's my roundabout way of kind of answering your fiber question. I, I think that focus on the diversity fiber will take care of itself right yeah and as you had mentioned before too like you begin to take in more plants you're automatically taking in fiber rich foods and you're by nature of eating this more diverse diet you're starting to eliminate or eat less of the things that are maybe fiber deficient and mm -hmm. higher processed or you know these animal products if we reduce that and increase fiber like that's just you're you're kind of winning across the board mm -hmm. And I should add uh, one thing that, that I think is important to be cognizant of is our microbiome is currently set up, has adapted to our current diet. So if you've been eating a diet that's, that's really deprived of fiber, is full of ultra-processed foods and, and animal protein, your current microbiome is not geared towards a whole food plant-based diet. Now, one of the really neat things is that our microbiome can adjust, can alter very quickly, and it can adapt. Um, but it's important to be aware of that because if you make a lot of changes overnight and you don't allow sufficient time sort of going low and slow and building up over a period, um, it's kind of like throwing an atomic bomb into your, into your gut. And what will happen is 
you'll you might experience some discomfort, some bloating, you know, ex- excess gas, things like that, and you may be left thinking, my physiology is just not suited to to these foods. And again, you might revert back. It's not that these foods are not good for you. It's just that your microbiome right now is not set up in a way that can actually process these and reward you. What we want to do is we want to slowly nudge that microbiome. The composition will change. Uh, and over time, you'll be able to handle more more diversity, more total fiber, and you'll be able to tap more into those rewards that I spoke to earlier. Right. So you kind of have to train your gut, so per se, much like you would train for a marathon or if you were training for some goals in the gym. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, I'm not doing any endurance training right now. And if I just woke up this morning and went for a 30 or 40K run and tried to do a marathon, I would be in some serious pain and my recovery would be terrible. It wouldn't be a wise idea. Um, Or if someone hasn't been in the gym lifting weights for a year and they go in and try and bicep curl double what they, you know, double the weight that they perhaps can, they might injure themselves. They're going to be very, very sore. And so it's a, it is a, it's a great analogy. You have to, 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 in order to get your body fit, you have to have a build up, a ramp up, a process. Um, and over time, our body, our muscles, our, um, aerobic system, cardiovascular system adapts and allows us to do more. And that's the same, um, with our diet and our gut. Yeah. We all want the overnight hack, right? <laughs> Go to the gym once and, you know, have the physique that we imagine we, we should have, or, you know, decide, okay, starting Monday, I'm going to try this plant-based diet. And so you out with everything you used to eat and high fiber and lots of legumes, beans, whatever it is. And all of a sudden you're yeah. like lunchtime thinking like, Oh, I can't eat yeah. like, than it is. It's like, you, you can't do the zero to 60 and expect it's just going to work or have that result right away. Yeah, no, I, and, and, and I get it because if, if someone's listening and they are listening to this and, and they've, you know, they are feeling lethargic, low in energy, perhaps they're a little bit overweight, perhaps they have family history of certain diseases, they're going to feel motivated, inspired and enthusiastic and they should because we have a lot of agency and there is a lot of things that we can do in our life to make really positive change. And, and we've spoken a lot about reducing risk of disease, but the fact of the matter is, as you change your diet, you're also going to get a lot of instant benefits. You are going to feel more energetic, less lethargic. Your cognition will, will change. You might experience less brain fog. Your sleep might improve. Um, but it is worth remembering that even as excited as you are, um, taking taking some small steps over time will serve you better than than trying to change everything overnight and that's not just from a physiological point of view it also stems back to what we mentioned earlier when you make a lot of different changes at once um you know our behavior and our habits have been set up over a long period of time and um it can be very difficult to to adopt new habits um so i think uh, less is more is, is also advantageous from that angle too Right. Kind of play the long game on it. You, you touched on um, something that I think we wanted to, we wanted to land on a little bit was that idea of like genetics and that, you know, some people might think, um, you know, this, this was how my, my father, grandfather, great grandfather, like they, they had these, you know, genetic 
uh, I'm genetically predisposed to high blood hypertension mm-hmm. or cardiovascular disease or, or, you know, becoming a diabetic, like my mom and my dad struggle with that. So for some people, it's like, well, you know, it's just, it's what, it's the hand I've been dealt. Um, mm. And for some, that's kind of like a defeatist attitude. So therefore, I'm just going to live my life and, you know, it's kind of coming down the pipe. Others, they might see it as like, no, I'm going to try to like change it. How much would you say, you know, is our genetics dictates what's going to happen to us versus maybe like the environment we're raised in. So maybe it's not as much genetic as it is just like familial patterns and trends of like what's on our plate, the foods we have yeah. versus like how much can we control with our lifestyle choices? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I, I think I personally, myself, I, I've, I've no doubt, um, got some some genes that probably predispose me to cardiovascular disease that that's the the disease that runs in my family um and i i think i would fall into that bucket of defeatist attitude at some point in time perhaps until i learned a bit more um and i think that's part of also just our society in general we've normalized a lot of these conditions so you know the, the fact that our parents or grandparents have experienced them at a young age, but also our friends' parents and, and, and their parents. And when we're in school, we, we hear about these diseases all the time. So we've almost accepted them as a, a kind of standard part of our society. Um, I think that we've accepted them um, as sort of inevitable in someone's life far too early because we have very a lot of examples of other populations where their health span is so much better. You know, yes, they might be experiencing some diseases, but it's far, far later in life. So they're getting an extra 15, 20 years of high quality life before they're affected by um, any type of, of disease state. There's some interesting studies that have tried to tease this out. You know, how much of our genes control our, our health fate versus the environment, the way that we navigate through life, the, the exercise that we do or don't do, the food that we do eat or, or don't eat, the sleep that we get versus not get. And I think the best um, kind of population to study this in is identical twins. Hmm. Same genes, but twins that go off and live in different environments. And you can test this. You can get right to the heart of this um, question. And in, in, in this area of science, it's been observed that Genetics probably have about 20% say of your health fate and your environment, 80%. So your environment in that um, uh, instance is four times more powerful than your genetics. So how much say do you have? I would say that's quite a lot of say. Um, now, there, it's important to mention there can be some genetic predispositions that no matter what you do, that's that is your outcome but by and large if we're looking at cardiovascular disease type 2 diabetes fatty liver disease alzheimer's dementia by and large with these types of uh chronic diseases that have very long latency periods you know they develop over decades these diseases you might have a heart attack when, when you're 40 50 or 60 but you you really started paving the way for that in your teenage years if not earlier um with these types of, of chronic conditions, it seems like our environment, the decisions that we make in our day-to-day are far more powerful than our, than our genetics. Um, and you're right, that kind of does flip the script. It, it takes you from a, a feeling of disempowerment to, to feeling very, very empowered. 
Um, and the next question, you know, becomes, well, how should I shift my, my lifestyle to, to start stacking the, the deck in my favor? Right. I think, I think at this point we've hopefully established that, you know, a plant-based whole food diet um, is great for preventative health and just for having a healthy lifestyle. But uh, maybe we can shift to those that are looking, um, you know, those, those vegans are, are skinny, you know, they're, they're not strong. Um, maybe we can shift to like plant-based foods for performance, plant-based mm-hmm. foods for athletics. If I'm looking to um, optimize myself and, and find the best version of myself in terms of athletic performance, uh, what foods um, are going to support that? Uh, maybe we can jump a bit into supplements. I know Dean and I have our favorites, like where I know Rich uh, mentioned this as well. Like I've, I'm always testing on myself and, you know, I found cordyceps and pine pollen, interestingly, which uh, we can harvest uh, it's in season now here in Vancouver. Yeah. Um, pine pollen and cordyceps have had like the, the greatest results that I felt as well as beet juice and um, like high nitrate foods like arugula or yeah, I think you call it rocket or something. Yeah, like rocket. That. Yeah. Um, but maybe we can just kind of jam, jam on um, foods for performance, supplements for performance, and then get a little cool. bit in recovery and longevity after that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think when it comes to foods, um, there's probably not going to be a certain food that, that I suggest that someone hasn't heard of. I think yeah. what's, what's, what tends to be most important is, particularly if someone that's transitioning from an animal-based diet to a plant-based diet, is ensuring sufficient calories so you have enough energy to do the uh, activity, the exercise or the sport that you've chosen. And this is really, really important, particularly I find with males that I work with. Um, what can happen is you change your plate from this animal-based plate, which is very calorie-dense. What that means is for a given volume, if you were to look at the bird's eye of your plate, for, for what appears to be a small amount of volume of food, there's a lot of calories. Now, as you move to plant-based foods, if you were to have the same amount of volume on that plate, it would be much less calories because the plant-based foods are less calorie-dense. Now, in an obesogenic environment where most people can afford to lose some weight, that's a massive advantage for these plant-based diets, huge advantage, right? But if you're someone who has a high caloric demand, you're doing a lot of exercise and you're not wanting to lose weight, maybe you're wanting to build muscle or at least maintain your weight strength and function, then ensuring you're getting enough calories is going to be super important. Um, and and I actually think that uh, early on when people transition, one of the things that catches people out is this, and they, they feel, they often say, I just don't have the energy I used to have. And when you look into it, well, it makes sense. You're not eating the energy <laughs> that you were. Um, so if, you, if you're not giving your body the fuel that it needs, then you're going to run into some issues where uh, you do fatigue and you feel tired and that's not going to serve you in your performance. So, okay, well, then what's the answer there? Is it just to, to increase the, the volume of food on the plate? Yes, I think that you need to get used to eating a, a bit more volume. But um, there's also other types of foods, plant foods that are more calorie dense and you might want to lean more into those. And so nuts and seeds, uh, avocado, 
these are going to be really, really calorie dense foods that you can work into to meals or you can put them into a smoothie. For example, you mentioned there chia and flax, these sorts of foods. You can get quite a lot of those into a smoothie and really increase the amount of calories, which for an, for an athlete can be a great way to increase their sort of total daily energy intake, get them to a point where they're actually um, you know, providing their body with the amount of energy they need and they're not losing weight, they have enough energy and they're fueling those workouts. Um, dates and, and different fruits are another great food that you can work in. Um, and one thing with plant-based athletes that is amazing is um, when you're eating a, a plant-based diet, providing you're not trying to do it in a low-carb kind of way, which most people are not, you have a really good supply of carbohydrates. Um, so you're replenishing those glycogen stores that you need during exercise. Um, and so that's that's a, a powerful advantage, I think, of, of kind of eating in this way. Um, it's also a very anti-inflammatory eating pattern. So that can be very good from a recovery point of view, particularly I find with uh, athletes that maybe are towards the end of their their career, they notice that a little bit um, more. And, and I think you see in professional sport, you you see that, you see um, certain athletes that are getting towards, that are trying to extend their career. Um, that's probably one of the main reasons. Although there's not a research, not a lot of research yet that has studied that closely, there's obviously a lot of anecdotes there. They need to be tested in a scientific way. Um, but I do know there is some, some researchers at Stanford Uni um, that are starting to look at this. They're looking at um, uh, a bunch of athletes at Stanford University at the moment and, and looking at an omnivorous diet versus a plant-based. And they're going to be testing not just strength, but they're going to be looking at a whole range of different sports and endurance feats. And um, so we'll, we'll get more data and more learning um, there. But um, energy is going to be really important. And then coming back to what I said about protein earlier, this will somewhat depend on, on the athlete. Um, the the 1.6 grams per kilo is, is probably a more important thing for a strength power uh, athlete to be really focusing on. I think if you're an endurance athlete, it could be a little bit lower than that. Um, the research is, is probably pointing you more towards 1.2, 1.3 grams per, per kilogram. So it's really going to be dependent on um, the, the function, what you're trying to do with your, your body. Um, so you're going to make sure you're getting enough energy in your diet. You're going to be making sure that you're getting your the protein and then you know, the fact that you're getting so many calories from whole plant foods that are coming with a tremendous amount of antioxidants and compounds that have these anti-inflammatory uh, properties, that's going to be really helping you with your recovery. Um, so that's probably from a food perspective, like the top two things that I would really be focusing on, um, which is not specific to individual foods, but I think that's going to serve people the, the best. And then from a, a supplement point of view, well, there's there's a lot that you can that you can experiment with. Some is more evidence based. Some is not as evidence based. But that doesn't mean it doesn't work. Um, it just means that perhaps it's had less funding or hasn't yet been been studied. Um, but providing it's a supplement that's kind of uh, allowed within your sport, then I see no harm with trying something, trying to, if you are doing that sort of N equals one experiment, of course, you want to understand that, that it's a safe compound, um, has some sort of safety or um, adverse effect kind of studies done on it. But um, you would want to 
be changing as few things as possible at one time because when you introduce all of these different compounds as a bit of a cocktail, um, it can get expensive and it's hard to work out what's working and what's not. Um, but if I was to give you my kind of recommendations from what's been studied the most, uh, creatine, definitely. I just did a two and a half hour conversation on creatine with uh, one of the scientists that uh, in this space who's been researching it for about 30 years. And we often hear about creatine from a, a power, strength and um, uh, reducing fatigue. And it, there's a lot of evidence there to show the benefits with uh, about three to five grams of creatine a day. Um, you could, you'll see some protocols, they load first with 20 grams of, of creatine for about four days that then saturates the cells. And then you move to this three to five gram a day sort of maintenance dose ongoing. Um, and you can do that. Uh, the really interesting thing about creatine is that there appears to be, um, some benefit from a cognition point of view as well. And uh, there's quite a lot of research looking at traumatic brain injury, um, athletes that have had collisions and head knocks. And uh, it's very, very early, but there is some uh, signal there to suggest that particularly in collision sports, if you are getting concussed, the amount of creatine produced in the brain actually goes down. Mm. Um, and the, the brain has this kind of... Uh, electricity issue and problem with generating energy and that's what creatine helps with i should add creatine essentially allows your body to produce more atp um, which is the kind of energy molecule of course very important in athletic performance but very important for our brain which is very um, energy intensive so um, creatine i'd say is very very proven from an athletic performance point of view the cognitive side of things there's a lot more research that needs to happen but um eric rawson who i interviewed he and many of his colleagues are kind of of the view that the, the because the safety profile of it is so good if you're an athlete and you're in collision sport that the prudent idea would be to be using it for the muscle benefits and you may well be getting a benefit from a cognitive point of view um, that will help you in, in years to come. Often athletes have cognitive issues well after their career has, has finished. Um, so that's that. Um, caffeine, for those that can tolerate it, um, quite a bit of evidence that caffeine can um, improve performance. Um, it kind of one of the mechanisms is that it may reduce your perceived level of effort so that you so you feel like you're doing less um so from a, a mental point of view you can persist and and, and do more um and then uh beta alanine is a another compound so you tried that for uh, cycling i'll get the, yeah. the tingles in the fingers but i'm like it's working <laughs> something's happening yeah yeah, um, it's interesting because not everyone gets that paresthesia, but some people do. I get it. Um, and uh, what some of the researchers are actually trying to tease out, does that paresthesia uh, in and of itself offer a kind of placebo effect because you do feel like it's working? Um, but there is en enough research to, to kind of show that beta-alanine can be uh, effective Um if you experience the paresthesia, a good tip is beta alanine is similar to creatine where it's not, you don't have to take it at a certain time. 
in order to improve your performance. So creatine, that three to five gram dosage, you could have it in the morning, um, you could have it in the afternoon or after exercise. It doesn't matter so much. There is a little bit of evidence to suggest that you might absorb more after a workout if you have it with some carbohydrates. Um, but overall, it's just about saturating the muscle cells with creatine. Beta alanine is the same thing. It's just about saturating the body with it. So if you have paresthesia, you can half your dose and have half the morning, half at night. And in doing so, you might not experience that tingling if that's kind of worrying you. Um, there's no reason to suggest that that paresthesia is in, in any way harmful. It can just be a little bit uncomfortable. It's kind of a hot, tingling um, feeling. So that's that. And then I'd say, and you mentioned beetroot, and this is the one that I think really excites me, um, is nitric oxide um, boosting compounds. So we, we have quite a bit of evidence now showing um, an increase in nitric oxide following the consumption of foods like beetroot or arugula rocket. Um, and now you can buy these beetroot supplements that are really rich in, in nitrates and um, your body will convert those nitrates, not to be confused with the nitrates in meat products that people may have heard of, um, can lead to carcinogenic compounds um, being produced in the body the the way the body responds to nitrates in plant foods is different to nitrates in animal foods and it has to do with what they're packaged with mm -hmm. so when when the the nitrates are packaged alongside polyphenols and vitamin c as they are in plant foods they they go down they get shuttled down a different pathway and we produce nitric oxide which is this compound that vasodilates opens up our blood vessels increases blood flow um, and al allows us to get more oxygen to our tissues and um, there are quite a, a lot of different studies now showing benefit from a performance point of view so um, beetroot powder i'm a big fan of i i have that myself um and is there a difference between consuming beet juice beetroot juice versus uh, having the powder in a supplement it comes down to the amount of nitrates that are are in a serve. Um, what I might do for you, and you could pop this into the show notes, I have a table that that explains the amount of nitrates that one would want if they're trying to really optimize their exercise and cool. how to get that. If you were doing that through beetroots, it, it is, if you were making your own, it would be about three, three and a half beetroots to get. So it's quite a lot. Um, that's why some of these beetroot powders, which are a very condensed source of the nitrates, can be a bit more convenient. Um, but that's not to say that, you know, if you're eating beetroots, um, rocket, because it's not just beetroots, if you're also eating a lot of um, dark leafy greens like rocket, you'll, you'll be getting nitrates in through um, that as well. Um, but if you're looking for something just quickly that you want to take sort of two, three hours before exercise, because this is one that you do want to have in that window before exercise, because that increase in blood flow is only going to be a temporary um, experience and you want, you want that to be occurring while you're exercising. If you're wanting something super convenient, then you'd buy a beetroot powder and, and put that into your, your water or smoothie. Yeah. And in some ways it's like the, the classic scenario where, you know, the, the most ideal is going to, the most ideal supplement or food or whatever is going to be the one that you're going to consume the most. Right. And so yeah. it's as simple as dumping that beetroot powder into a smoothie or yeah, like into some water and mm -hmm. just drinking it. And that's the way to go rather than, you know, roasting up three or four beets and yeah. 
<laughs> before you're working. That's right. Uh, but but I guess as well for, for folks listening who are maybe thinking, well, you know, I'm not competitive, uh, competitive athlete. I'm not sure about the supplement. Eating routinely arugula and uh, beetroot, spinach, these foods that are high nitrate naturally, even lettuce, um, is a really, really good idea because we're talking about performance benefits here. But this, this um, pathway of nitrates into nitric oxide, improving endothelial cell function uh, in your arteries and opening them up, that also has long-term cardiovascular benefits as well. So um, if you're someone that's interested in just improving your cardiovascular health um, and, and the, the health of that system, then you know, regularly including those foods is going to be a good idea. Mm. What about like maca or um, I don't know if you've played around with pine pollen, but um, or cordyceps, some of these, these foods that are mm. promoting that have been used maybe in in traditional Chinese medicine or Ayurvedic medicine that kind of have a history um, in ancestral um, traditional medicines? Yeah, I think uh, marker is one that I throw into my smoothies. Um, you know, I tend to have a, a few different kind of like, I guess, quote unquote, superfood powders. Um, you mentioned a few of them before. I'm, I'm not sure whether we cheer and flax fall under that, but I'll often throw some, some marker in. I like the taste of it. Um, I'm not, I'm not hundred percent sure how much research has been done on it. And again, that's not reflective of this not being beneficial. Often it's just a reflection of not being able to get funding um for for a certain product i think the mushroom space is really really interesting and i think that there's already pre-clinical data on a lot of these um but i think over the next 10 years we'll see an explosion of studies looking at lion's mane and cordyceps and the tricky thing is um a lot of research labs are, are looking at different outcomes um and even if we look at say cognitive benefits because there could be a number of cognitive benefits for, through supplementing a number of these mushroom compounds. Um, it can be hard to, to compare lab to lab because they use different cognitive tests, different um, measuring different domains of cognition like memory and learning and focus. And um, it's a somewhat tricky area right now. But again, I, I think that just because there's not evidence, I wouldn't write them off. I think um, those are ones that I put into the category of okay, they're not at that level of like creatine, caffeine, beta-alanine where lots of labs in lots of different people have tested them, um, but it doesn't mean that they don't work. Try, try those out, experiment. If someone suggests um, something to you, you can go to examine.com and that will usually give you just a good idea as to the safety profile of a compound. Um, and when you read that and if you're happy from a safety point of view, I would recommend... Um, you know, experimentation slowly, one at a time, um, seeing if you derive any benefit. Yeah. And, and what about going back to creatine just for a second here? What about creatine for endurance athletes? Like uh, if you're a marathon runner and you don't want to carry, like I, I feel like creatine's got a bit of a rep for water weight. Um, mm. Is this, is that just? Yeah. It's a great question. So this is a really, really interesting because what, what, and, and, we need a bit more research here, um, but what we need to decipher is, because you're right, creatine, just like carbohydrates, really, carbohydrates also help um, restore, uh, retain water. Glycogen holds um, about three grams of water for every one gram of carbohydrate. 
which which is why when you go on a keto diet, side note, uh, a ketogenic diet, and someone sees a couple of kilograms loss, weight loss in the first week, it's not fat loss. All of that, pretty much all of that, is just glycogen depletion and water. Wow. Of course, it can be very motivating for that person because they see the scale weight go down. But um, yeah, most of that is is not actually losing fat. Um, but with uh, with creatine. Yes, it also does attract some some water. So the question is, if you're a boxer trying to make weight or you're an endurance athlete who's running over a long period of time, is that extra body weight, is that uh, going to negatively affect your performance or is the net effect of having greater creatine on board despite the extra weight going to lead to a better outcome, right? So um, there is some evidence that, yes, creatine can help with endurance um, sports, particularly uh, endurance sports where within the endurance component there might be some sprinting or some real power bouts or up, you know, running up hills um, or sort of sprint work that's, that's in it versus a steady state. Um, I wouldn't say we have a very clear answer on that. But what I would say is if you are someone that is uh, an endurance athlete, and you're thinking, I, I like the sound of creatine, but I am worried about the extra weight. You, you need to be mindful that in order to get creatine out of your system, you need to allow about four to six weeks. So you could be using creatine away from events to help improve your performance, build some strength and build some power. And then four to six weeks before you're going to want to stop. It's not something that you can stop five days prior you, you won't have gotten it out of your system and you'll still be holding weight. So um, I would say that the precautious, the sort of cautious approach would be to do that for an endurance athlete to get their body weight back down if that's of concern for them um, and just to keep an eye on, on the research and see what comes out. So if you cycled protein, uh, creatine, if you went like four months on, four months off sort of thing, would that have like a net net benefit then? Well, I, I, my speculative, my speculation here would, um, and I am speculating. I would say yes because you'll be able to do more work. You'll, you'll be out. You'll be stronger during that period, and structure will. Sorry, the the stimulus that you provide your body will ultimately be what determines the adaptive response. So, if during that. Uh, off-season period where you're using creatine, it's allowing you to lift more, to do more power workout. Your body will adapt. Um, so I think that, that you'll be in a net uh, benefit, beneficial position as opposed to going through that period with much less creatine on board. Right. You can kind of boost your baseline and then you, when you went on again, you kind of start back up and you might be able to incrementally yeah. boost if you and it won't it won't affect because your body does produce some creatine it produces about one gram a day um there's no evidence to suggest say having it for a period of time and when you stop having it one of the concerns that someone might have is will your will your body keep producing it um and the evidence suggests it will so your body will continue to produce that sort of one gram a day that it naturally does um and we should add i I think that the evidence is pretty clear that this is even more beneficial for a plant-based athlete. And the reason for that is you do get some creatine through animal foods. 
It's not a lot, but you do get some. So what we see is the baseline levels of creatine in a vegetarian compared to a, an, an omnivore um, is a little bit lower. And so in the creatine supplementation trials, the vegetarians actually get a better uh, improvement in performance than the omnivorous um, athletes. So uh, that, that's not to say the omnivorous athletes don't also improve. They do because you can't get enough through your diet to get to a performance level. Um, but there's probably more benefits up for grabs here for plant-based athletes. Interesting. Yeah. All right. So, you know, I've increased my arugula and my nitrates and I'm adding some creatine and I'm feeling like I'm getting some great results and I'm able to push the runs and push the gym and I'm, you know, getting personal bests in basketball and soccer and it's all great. But now what about recovery? Like um, is increasing the fiber alone going to help me recover after these like strenuous activities or are there uh, foods or supplements that I want to be mindful of to make sure that I'm consistently recovering so I can keep, you know, keep getting these gains. This is a big question and and um, it's a tough one on a kind of just a, a high level because it's so individualized. Um, recovery, it certainly comes down to nutrition, but it also comes down to the way you're programming your training and, and what does that periodization look like? What's the volume of, of training that you're doing? Um, I think outside of, of eating a a diet as we've kind of explained and eating sufficient calories sufficient calories will be really really important for recovery um sleep is going to be really important um not not spoken about enough um and i'd say that also does um relate back to to diet i think that um there's a bit of evidence to suggest that trying to to stop eating a couple hours before going to bed can can result in a a deeper sleep state um but looking into a sleep routine is going to be important um and that probably sounds a little nerdy but i I, there are you know a number of things that you can do to promote better sleep and that's going to i think have you know far it's a far better bang for your buck than focusing on single kind of foods to add in and the things that i would be doing is uh looking at light exposure is going to be critical um you know we have created artificial light and the the hours that we're exposed to light now is very different to thousand years ago and this affects our circadian rhythms circadian biology it affects hormones um all of which is very very important for us to get into a deep relaxed state um, and experience true recovery so in those hours leading up to bed where we're trying to also not eat a lot of food it's probably a good idea to 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 try and limit bright light exposure so dimming the lights around the home um i think that you can still you know watch netflix and and a movie but be conscious of of the kind of brightness of that screen um and whatever you're doing it should be something that you're enjoying um not getting on twitter and having arguments and fights and stuff because that agitation is going to be one of the worst things that you can actually do to to get into uh, a nice rested state um getting your room nice and cool is going to be important that temperature um again will allow you to get into that deep deep sleep if you're wanting to do kind of ice or or sauna type therapies and that's part of your routine i think it makes more sense 
from a body temperature point of view to do something hot late at night, not cold. Um, going into an ice bath right before bed will probably make it harder to, to get into that um, that deep sleep state or it'll delay it a little bit. So um, doing something warm um, and uh, having that room cool. And then, uh, you know, in the morning when you get up, trying to get outside in the first hour or so ideally and exposing yourself to, to natural light is going to be really good for setting those circadian um, clocks. So this is diverging from, from nutrition, but I think it's just very, very important to, to kind of try and um, set up and it's going to really help someone's uh, recovery. Do you have um, any like cold therapy or hot therapy that you bring into your own personal recovery? I do. I tend to do uh, more hot therapy. I do some some cold. Um, the the cold that that I do is usually away from training sessions. Um, I think if you're a strength athlete uh, and you're trying to promote lean muscle and and um, get stronger, the ice bath can actually blunt the muscle protein synthesis response and makes it harder actually for the body to get amino acids into the muscle. And you can think about that logically. The ice constricts the blood vessels. So it slows down blood flow. So, you know, straight after a workout, we're wanting to pump nutrition into the muscles. So hot's going to be better. Um, but again, it really depends on someone's goals because if I'm working with an athlete that, um, and I haven't mentioned this, but my, my career before nutrition was physiotherapy. So I, I come from um, a background of rehabilitation and working with athletes. Um, some athletes have different goals and depends on their sport. If you're someone who's an endurance runner and you have done um, an event and you know you need to run again soon, well, in that case, ice is going to be really, really important for you. It's going to help you get up for your, for your next event. Um, so it's kind of context dependent, but I think both ice and sauna have really, really good utility. Sauna in particular, you know, I'm thinking about um, doing a deeper dive into this at, at some stage and sharing it with folks. Sauna has some tremendous benefits from, from a, a general health and well-being point of view, particularly cardiovascular um, system health. So, um, you know, I really encourage if anyone can get access to, to a sauna, I think there's some tremendous benefit to be had there. And, um, you know, I, I myself do about anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes once I've got the sauna up to a kind of, um, I think it sits at about 150 degrees Fahrenheit, maybe a touch higher, um, three or four times a week. Um, and that seems to be, you know, pretty consistent with the, the research um, at least the observational research that associates that practice with improved cardiovascular health. And does like infrared sauna versus a traditional sauna make a difference or is it just about the heat? Yeah, it may well. There's not enough research on it is the truthful uh, answer, but you could probably speculate there might be a difference. A lot of the research is actually looking at the traditional sauna um, a lot of that comes out of the Eastern European countries and it's part of their culture and practice um, for, for uh, many years now. So I think to answer that, is there any difference in sort of health benefits with infrared and, and traditional perhaps? Um, but I think what we know from both of them is that the, the actual just exposure to heat 
is beneficial in terms of elevating your heart rate almost in a way that mimics exercise and i don't want to turn people off exercise because that's often a question can i just sit in the sauna and is it like i get a workout uh if you're someone that can't exercise then i would say absolutely if you can't do the 150 uh, minutes of moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise per week um you know and that might be someone who's disabled or someone who has an injury then absolutely getting into the sauna is going to be a really good way to almost mimic exercise to a, to a degree and get some of those adaptive responses in the cardiovascular system. Um, but really, uh, everyone should be doing exercise where they can and then using sauna as a, a kind of additional um, tool. And what about, uh, we're divesting from food a little bit here, but we'll, we'll loop back around. What about, um, do you get into the breathwork stuff yourself or is that something you've explored? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do quite a lot of, of breath work. Um, and, you know, I just find that it's, for me, it's just really settling. Um, you know, anytime that I feel a little bit frazzled, a lot of things on the to-do list, um, the breath work brings you back. It calms your whole nervous system. Um, I think it's a, a, a really, really good tool to start the day. Um, so I actually do um, a kind of uh, meditation practice, which is all through the guided through through breathing, um, and um, you know it's something that I do every single day to start the day. And on those days where I miss it, um, I definitely just don't feel as settled and, and clear. Um, so breath work, I think you know the thing with breath work is if you if you haven't done it before, it can seem a little bit woo woo. But there's a lot of science um, behind it and our breath, um, you know, really can be a way for us to tap into our physiology and, um, you know, get our nervous system firing in a way that, that supports us and takes us out of this kind of fight or flight frantic um, state that we can find ourselves in when we always feel like we're um, running behind and that that to-do list as i mentioned is is always growing um you know i find this is a great way just to come back be a bit stiller um and and usually that's a place that then is you know makes it much easier to get through that to-do list when you're coming from that place so um i use breath work both during the meditation but then also if i'm in the sauna i'll tap into that um as well there um I recently did a podcast with Andrew Huberman and um, he's got a whole lot of different tools and tips. I'd encourage people to listen to some of his work, um, some kind of real-time tool, breath work um, strategies that you can do if you were um, feeling anxious or about to do a talk in front of people. There are certain things that you can do quite quickly that will tap into your nervous system, help settle, settle you down, bring your heart rate down. Um, and they can be um, quite helpful, and, and I personally use those. Yeah, and it's intuitive, right? Like we we think, uh, okay, you're about to do something like slow down, take a breath. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, we know it to be true. And I mean, breath work uh, has been central in many, many practices for centuries. And we're, in some ways, there's this like awakening to it now where, you know, it's a bit trendy. It's like the, the ice bath thing is taken off. And then coupled with that is the, you know, the breath work practices, but just even, I think it's so important what you said, like the day to day, 
um, how that can set you up in a moment to, to reduce the anxiety of yeah, a performance, uh, speaking engagement, or if you're mm. yourself, you know, many people obviously today in our world are experiencing more and more levels of anxiety every day. And just these little tools that we can use to recenter ourselves and kind of come back to ourselves. I mean, that's why, why wouldn't we be tapping into yeah. if we're talking yeah. about looking after ourselves, we, we might as well use all the tools to our advantage to a hundred percent. And that's what it is. It, you know, we spoke about diet, our breath is another tool and it's so important. Um, and, and it all comes back to this idea of just being more in control. Yeah. And there's a lot that we can do. Um, and that makes our, uh, our days to day to day much easier. Yeah. Um, and, and, um, we can drive more joy from what we're doing. So, um, I'm all on board, you know, these tools. And I think you're right. These, you know, the, the, the breath work has been around for so, so long and it's part of so many different cultures and, and we're kind of just, uh, grasping, coming to understand how beneficial it can be. I think we're, we're kind of naturally very skeptical of, of certain things and, um, you know, eventually the science kind of catches up and then people embrace it and we're seeing that now. Yeah. So a lot of ways, typically people might have um, experienced or, or, or use a tool people might have used to deal with stress or anxiety or, you know, you say you do the breath work in the morning to kind of set up your day. A lot of people at the end of the day, they're like, oh, it's just been a stressor. Like, I'm just going to have a drink. And it's kind of in that we have that culture. I mean, Australia, Canada, I think similar in Definitely. terms of drinking. Um What's your, what's your view on, on alcohol? Like if we're talking about overall health and longevity, we know that alcohol, alcoholism can have really mm-hmm. effects on our health. But then we see these studies of, you know, red wine, for example, and the, the different um, polyphenols. The polyphenols in there, right? And so people say, oh, polyphenols later, I know Simon's. Uh... Uh, yeah, well, yeah. So I might not be making friends with this, but with this um, position, but. Uh, I don't. I don't think alcohol's healthy. I don't think red wine's healthy. Um, you know, I think that the the kind of observational evidence that some of that was based upon was fairly weak. And I think we're now at a position where we we understand that really uh, any volume of alcohol is certainly not something that will improve your health. Um, is that something that we all want to hear? Probably not. Um, so I'm sorry to be the kind of bearer of bad news there. Um, now people might point to like the blue zones and, and, and areas where people do experience good health and they have alcohol in their life. And I think there's a couple of things that probably we need to unpack here. One is would they do better without the alcohol? Um, that's a question. And then the, the second is, and I think this is a hard one to unravel is that if alcohol is bringing people together and it's a way of reducing stress in their life, is it what's the net the net outcome the net effect of of that um because it's it's one thing to look at the alcohol and its effect on physiology but then there's also the effect on your health and well-being of being within a community and and having that um so that would be kind of interesting to to explore but as you say um and and i'm kind of of the view that there there are other things that we can do to build community uh, and there are other tools that we can lean on to reduce stress that do not include alcohol um knowing that's with that said i can put my hand up i have the odd glass of red wine here or there so i'm 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 perhaps a bit hypocritical there but um you know i don't think that it's it it's 
sort of um, going to dramatically increase our level of risk of disease if we have the odd glass uh, here and there. But at the same time, I think it's important to, to be aware that the idea that it's beneficial in reducing our risk is based on very, very weak evidence. Um, and I'm just not convinced by it. So, um, you know, I'm kind of aware that this habit of mine of having the occasional glass of red wine probably is not a great one. Right. Yeah. All right. So maybe sticking on that, that um, strain of, of longevity there, can we talk a little bit about um, food for uh, diet for brain health, um, for preventative measures for Alzheimer's, dementia, um, kind of how a plant-based whole food diet can can benefit brain health. And um, yeah, maybe we can just hang out there for a few minutes. Sure. So a lot of this work was done by uh, a researcher, Martha Morris, um, and she was uh, interested in looking at dietary patterns that are associated with lower risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, she's from Rush University, and she actually developed what's called the MIND diet, M-I-N-D. And she developed this for a couple of reasons. One was um, it was becoming quite clear that people who were eating a sort of more Mediterranean-style diet with less red meat, um, lower amounts of dairy compared to the average person, more legumes and, and whole plant foods, had significantly lower risk of developing these neurodegenerative conditions. At the same time, the DASH diet, which is another very plant-forward diet that's often been used in clinical research to lower blood pressure, at the same time, that type of dietary pattern was also associated with lower risk of dementia. Martha took both of these dietary patterns and looked at them and sort of morphed them into her mind diet which is a very, very, very plant-forward diet. It massively de-emphasizes red meat. It de-emphasizes fish from the Mediterranean diet to once per week instead of, I think, five or six times. Um, de-emphasizes uh, ultra-processed foods and dairy products. Um, and it really emphasizes foods like legumes, dark leafy greens, berries, whole grains, and we can go into some of those because they, they may have specific benefits um, for brain health. Um, and I think she left some room in there for poultry and she actually stated that wasn't because there's any benefits uh, for poultry when it comes to brain health, but it was more from an adherence point of view, they felt like they needed to have some animal foods in there. So that's a kind of interesting thing to, to note. Um, so her group went and, and looked at what happens when people adhere to this style of dietary pattern. And, um, you know, again, it's very, very plant forward. And they followed people over a number of years and, and looked at, uh, some, compared to someone who adheres to that dietary pattern at a very low level, how do people that adhere to it at a very high level um, go in terms of risk of, of Alzheimer's dementia? And what they found was that those that were adhering to that dietary pattern um, regularly, they had 53% lower risk of developing Alzheimer's dementia. Um, which is a fairly significant um, risk reduction. And there, there was a whole bunch of other research that this group did to help construct that and inform that. And I sort of alluded to that before. They had um, separate studies looking at dark leafy greens 
um, which seem to be very, very beneficial for brain health. There's um, some compounds called carotenoids that are found in these dark leafy greens that uh, seem to uh, improve blood vessel function in our brain, um, reduce inflammation. And in, in one of their papers, they found that folks who are regularly eating dark leafy greens, their brains actually functioned as if they were 11 years younger than those who were rarely eating dark leafy greens. And, and when I say regularly, I'm talking about a serve a day. So um, not, a, not, not, not a huge sort of volume, quite achievable. And um, so one of my things I wrote in the book was I think that there's a strong case for at least a daily salad. And in that daily salad, and this comes back again to, um, you know, we spoke about nitrates before, but you're going to get lots of these dark leafy greens in there, mix them in, be true, but, you know, adding, adding whatever else you want, but just trying to remember a daily salad. And I think that's going to be a really, really um, good thing to build into your lifestyle from a brain health point of view. You probably throw some walnuts on there, which are also great for brain health. Um, so that was um, that was Martha Morris's work. They also looked at berries. There's quite a few different studies out there now from her group and other groups showing that regular consumption of berries um, seem to be quite protective from a neurodegenerative um, point of view. So uh, having you know one or two serves of berries a day, I think, is a great idea. And the proposed mechanism here leads back to polyphenols. Um, berries are very, very rich in polyphenols. I think they're a much better way to get your polyphenols than red wine, personally. Um, you can get much more of them without the alcohol and the calories. Uh, and so um, one of the main polyphenols in berries is, is a group um, called anthocyanins. And Maybe 10 years ago, I think the, the sort of prevailing idea was that polyphenols would be um, sort of absorbed into your bloodstream through your small intestine and um, directly, and then would circulate through the body and have some sort of effect. Now we realize that, well, actually, we couldn't see what was happening to most polyphenols. We didn't have the technology. And now we can see that only about 5% of the polyphenols you eat. So if you have a handful of berries, right, they're going to go down the, into your digestive system, into your stomach, then down, make their way into your small intestine and then your large intestine. That's the kind of order at a high level. Um, and these anthocyanins, when they get to your small intestine, only 5% of them will actually be absorbed into your blood. So what happens with the other 95%? actually keep going into your large intestine, which is where those trillions of gut bugs reside. And those polyphenols, they act as prebiotics, the same as fiber, prebiotic fiber. Um, and so they will directly feed various strains of gut bugs, which will then produce beneficial metabolites, of which there are thousands that then enter the blood. And now we have visibility of those. So the really interesting point of that is that the, the parent compound of the anthocyanin that comes in through this small intestine and is absorbed into the blood, just 5% of them, that only sits in your blood for about an hour or two. Whereas these metabolites will circulate for 48 hours. So now we're starting to really appreciate the 
the kind of effect that these foods can have on our health. It makes much more sense now when we see these observational studies showing that berries are associated with improved cognitive outcomes. Now that, now that we understand that these metabolites are actually circulating for 48 hours and these metabolites, metabolites can cross the blood-brain barrier and improve um, the function of our blood vessels, increase uh, hormone in our brain called brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is really important for, for um, plasticity, forming new connections and um, learning and, and retaining information. So um, all very exciting stuff. That research is, you know, it's kind of come out the last five to 10 years, but it's a, it's a booming area of research now because anthocyanins, as I mentioned, they're just one group of polyphenols. In citrus fruit, you have a different group of, of polyphenols. In dark chocolate, you have different polyphenols. So you can imagine now research teams are, are kind of racing to identify all of these different compounds and run studies to see how these different polyphenols uh, affect physiology. Um, but really, the, while that's all neat and, and, and nerdy, um, it's probably just helping us explain why going back to plant-based dietary patterns, why they're so beneficial. We already understand that eat more of these foods, get better health outcomes. And now we're kind of starting to piece it together to go, oh, hang on. Uh, those compounds in berries are actually doing this, this, and this that we didn't understand or fully appreciate. Right. But it also would help people like it. It's so important. Like on one hand, just carte blanche, eat, eat the rainbow, eat more plants, like just work towards that. But if someone has specific uh, areas of, of concern that they want to target or, you know, create a diet to, to stave off, you know, genetic predispositions or whatever it is, this type of information is so valuable because then they can, they can take, take the initiative to say, okay, like if, if all I have to do is add, you know, a handful of spinach, a leaf of kale and some blueberries and blackberries and raspberries into a smoothie, like it, it's pretty accessible, and it's pretty easy for the average person to kind of check all the boxes of the things they need. Right. And so, whereas just saying, Oh, eat more, eat your veggies. That's kind of yeah. like our whole lives from our, from our mom's mm -hmm. other side of the dinner table. But when it's like, eat your veggies because like, this is what they can do for mm -hmm. you at a scientific level and specifically target specific, mm -hmm. like that's empowering for people. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It gives it more meaning. I know now when I'm making my dinner, uh, you know, I used to just kind of forget or, or, um, you know, irregularly include herbs and spices. And now I realize that these are so rich in polyphenols, you know, not only are they bringing flavor and making the to the food taste great, which is really important because, um, you know, eating in this manner, uh, shouldn't change the fact that food should be really enjoyed. Um, and it can be. You can eat in this way and get all these improvements and still derive the same amount of joy out of your food. Um, but now, point being, when I'm adding these herbs and spices, I'm, I'm really aware that these are loaded in polyphenols and I can connect with what that what that's doing to to our physiology, which, you know, I think you raise a good point there. It, it makes all of this so much more meaningful. Mm -hmm. Which ones would you, which like herbs and spices would you say are, are good to go? And you're saying fresh or like the dry mm. You can just get off the shelf. And yeah, yeah. Both are, are are have been shown to be very very rich in in polyphenols and antioxidant compounds. Um, you know, I, I have a, a kind of, um, I guess, a mix of both fresh 
and dried. Um, and from a fresh point of view, I'll have uh, parsley, basil, um, coriander. That's what we call it here. Do you call it that in Canada? Coriander is like a, the powdered um, version, or it's like the, the root of cilantro. So we would cilantro. Say- so you call it cilantro, yep. Um, I know that, that one, that's one where some people love it, some people hate it. Yes. Um, but you know, most, mostly I'm, I'm rotating through those sort of fresh ones, some dill and fennel, um, and, and fennel can be great in salads. Um, and then, you know, dried herbs and spices. So, um, you know, I tap a lot into like the cumin, the paprika and the smoked paprika, um, and even turmeric. Um, and of course like black pepper, that's going to be another one that you can throw in there. Um, but that's a short list. There's so many. And, um, I think that, again, work out what type of flavor are you trying to bring to a dish and um, use those herbs and spices to bring that experience. Um, and then the added benefit is that you're getting, you know, a real hit of these antioxidants and, and polyphenols. That's awesome. And then what about, um, you know, another popular one in the last you know, decade or so has been the fermented foods, the kombuchas, the kimchi, the sauerkrauts. Um, is there any anecdote? anecdotal um studies on on the benefits of of these foods whether for our microbiome or for mm-hmm. our wellness yeah there was a, a recent study out uh middle of last year this was uh out of stanford again um professor christopher gardner and uh dr justin sonnenberg and um the rest of their team erica sonnenberg and some others and they were really interested in looking at uh how does fiber and fermented foods affect our immune system and looking particularly at how these foods could affect the immune system through the microbiome. So Professor Christopher Gardner is a nutrition scientist. Um, He's done a lot of the big studies out there on uh, human studies looking at like low-carb and high-carb diets, whereas the Sonnenbergs are microbiologists, experts in microbiome, and they came together to do this study um, it was about a 10-week study. Um, I, I won't bore people with all of the, the ins and outs. I dedicated a two-hour episode to this, so it's a, it's a, uh, a big one. But overall, to, to give you the, the takeaway points and what's, what's instructive from this study, one was that um, fermented foods overall across the board consistently with all subjects reduced inflammation. So it seemed to improve the immune system response. It was very consistent. So that's a huge tick because, um, you know, chronic inflammation is a hallmark feature of a number of these diseases that we experience, but also having a lot of inflammation on board can be deleterious from a recovery point of view. So again, from an athlete, I should have mentioned this earlier, this could be another uh, food group to, to kind of tap into. Um, so what does that look like? Um, for a plant-based athlete, it's going to be things like kombucha. If you can get your hands on a recipe, um, and uh, make it at home, that's going to be great, or you can buy them from um, the store. Um, it's going to be kraut and sauerkraut. You want to find those in the cold section, not in the tinned uh, ambient shelf. Um, if it's tinned and in the ambient, the cultures will be dead. You want live cultures is going to be really, really important here. Some plant-based yogurts now have um, live cultures in them. There's plant-based kefir, um, so a range of different types of fermented foods um, are going to be, I think, valuable additions to your diet. I often, in that salad that we were talking about before, I often uh, throw a, a huge amount 
of kraut um, in addition to sprouts and, and other stuff in there. So that can be a good way to work that in. Um, and then on the other side of the study, the fiber, and this comes back to what we were talking about earlier. It's actually a, a nice kind of um, close the loop there. They, they found a very individualized response. So some participants who increased their fiber from 20 to 40 grams saw a reduction in inflammation. Some actually saw no change and others saw an increase. And that's, that's a very interesting response, but it probably comes, tells us, and, and they did look at this, the subjects who had very low baseline diversity, they struggled. They're the ones that had increased inflammation. And so it may be that those subjects, and they didn't look into this, but those subjects had a much larger history of antibiotic use, taking, um, eating more ultra-processed foods and more animal foods and less fiber exposure over their life, and they simply weren't set up to handle it, and it overloaded the system. And I think this is an important learning, um, and I mentioned uh, earlier about the benefits of going low and slow, but I, I, I do think right now there's a little bit of a, a, an online presence of folks who are eliminating plant foods and going to more animal-heavy style diets. And I think a lot of this is because of how damaged and disrupted the industrialized microbiome is. Mm. And so for many of these folks, if they are, um, have a microbiome that is not well-equipped to, to deal with fiber, stripping plant foods can bring uh, some, some immediate sort of short-term benefits. But the question is, at what cost is that to your long-term health? And also getting people to understand that, again, just because you're removing those foods and you feel a little bit better today, that's not suggesting that those foods are bad for your long-term health. Remember, this is most likely uh, a, an indication that your microbiome is severely disrupted. And we need to... We need to, just as you wouldn't walk into the gym, like we said earlier, pick up a weight, feel sore, and never walk into the gym again, that would just be avoiding the issue, right? You would, you would realize, hey, I'm a bit weak here. Um, I'm struggling. I know where I want to get to. I want to get into the gym, and I want to feel strong. But now I need a program and a plan to get back there. Um, and, and so I think that nicely sort of brings us back to that point. And that study, the fermented food versus fiber food, is um, some good evidence that that is, is probably happening out there. Isn't it interesting that we would, we would eat a diet, like, like I said, we had this industrialized microbiome, like we would eat a diet that creates that type of, you know, uh, atmosphere in our gut. And then when we introduce healthy whole foods and they disrupt that and they might cause some, some real like upset, not just in our stomach, in our, in our stomach, but in our whole system, we would look at, you know, those foods as being, bad or we would say oh no that's not working for me and we would we would go back to you know the thing that the lifestyle that really got us in that situation and not not take a pause and evaluate and say oh maybe maybe i'm reacting like to these good foods not because they're bad for me but because of like mm-hmm. pattern that i've been living in and and we know and i know you've talked about like lifestyle um, diseases and how we would go back to something like that, a lifestyle that produces disease rather than a lifestyle that produces, you know, well, wellness and health across the board. Mm. Yeah. I think we're just a bit disconnected from, from our health. Um, and we need to become more connected. And, and I would say to, to listen to those signals, 
uh, very closely because those signals, um, you know, as you say, uh, are, are not representative that these foods you're adding are detrimental to your health. It's very, very clear that those foods we know from so many studies are improving your health in so many ways and shifting your physiology in a beneficial way. What's happening is you're getting a, a message that's telling you, hey, my my microbiome or your microbiome is not currently geared to help digest these foods and tap into their benefits. Back it off, please. But don't forget me. I, w- I, I want to be introduced, um, but you need to do it in a bit of a sort of um, slow and steady approach. A gradual, gradual approach to it. Yeah. All right. I've got one more food question here. Then maybe we've got a couple environmental questions and then we can wrap you up and send you, send you off to the Australian sun, sun out there. Get some vitamin D. Cool. Um, okay. So nutrients of focus was a big part of the book here. And I, I really like that. And I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I thought maybe I can just like list them and you can, you can respond with like a couple foods and, or, sure. yep. you know, digging, digging too deep. Sure. So omega threes. So, uh, from a food point of view, flax, chia, hemp, uh, walnuts, I would, aim for a sort of two tablespoons uh, of the, the flax, chia, and hemp. Uh, any of those uh, would be um, enough to get you the amount of ALA, which is a type of omega-3 that, that we need. Um, and then I think if you wanted to take a, an algae oil supplement, which gives you a direct source of DHA and EPA, um, there's no definitive evidence that you have to do that. Um, we don't really have a clear answer on that, but if someone was wanting a sort of insurance policy, then taking an algae oil supplement is, is another option too. Okay. Uh, vitamin B12. I think supplementing this is the best way forward. There are a number of fortified foods. Um, B12 is not found in plant foods. It can be in traces in, in mushrooms and in some seaweeds, um, but probably not enough evidence to suggest that, that in a plant-exclusive diet, that's going to be enough to maintain a healthy B12 level, um, which is critical to nervous system function. So I would just say to um, to supplement it is going to be the most bulletproof approach. Um, there are a few different ways I described that in the book. You could go with a daily supplement or a weekly supplement. Um, the other option is if you do have fortified foods, and that could be plant-based milk or nutritional yeast or other foods that have B12, depending on what country you live in, um, as they're added to different foods, and you're very consistent with that, um, it's going to be at least three serves um, a day of sort of more than 4.5 micrograms of B12 in each serving to get you to a healthy level, then you could go down that route if you really didn't want to take a supplement. Um, and, and then again, you can assess all of this and quantify it on a blood test and, and make sure that you're at a healthy level with your physician. Okay, what about vitamin D? Might be lacking in Canada for, you know, probably nine months of the year. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends. Some of this depends where you live. The best thing is first get a blood test done, look at your vitamin D status. Um, it's dependent on a few things. Where do you live? If you're in a northern latitude um, where you get less sun exposure, you're more likely going to need a supplement. There's a large percentage of people um, that have vitamin D deficiency just based on where they live. Also, if you have darker skin pigmentation, then you're going to be at higher risk. 
Um, and the, the sort of darker your skin is, the more time you need to be in the sun, which is where we get most of our vitamin D from, to produce the same amount of vitamin D as someone with fairer skin. So that's why um, someone with darker skin is likely to be at higher risk of vitamin D deficiency. But bottom, bottom line, get your, get your testing done. And then from there, you can determine if you want to supplement. If you do want to supplement and you're looking for a vegan option, read the label. Um, because a lot of the vitamin D supplements are not vegan. Um, the vitamin D3 uh, is commonly is from wool. So if you wanted a vegan one, you can turn the label around and look for vitamin um, D3 that is from lichen, plant lichen, which is a type of algae, which is now quite common, or vitamin D2, which is sourced from mushrooms. So um, just another tip there. There you go. Now, what about uh, calcium? You know, we all think we got to get it from cows for mm. strange reason. Let's, um, where, where can we get calcium, food or supplements? Mm. I think uh, a good idea for most plant-based folks is find a plant-based milk that has uh, some cal- a good amount of calcium in it, sort of 100 to 150 milligrams per 100 mils, which most of them tend to now. Um, and if you're having that and having sort of, uh, one or two cups of that a day, be it with your coffee or in a cereal, that's going to be a nice additional sort of calcium on top of all the calcium that exists in plant foods, um, like your dark, dark leafy greens and certain seeds like sesame, um, tahini, for example. Um, the the kind of amount of calcium that someone needs is heavily debated. Mm. So you'll see in in UK, they they the require the, the recommendation is seven hundred milligrams a day. In Australia, it's about 1,300 um, or 1,000 to 1,300. And then around the world, it differs sort of in, in between those two levels. And a, a lot of this is, uh, in my view, um, it comes down to the fact that building strong bones is actually a massive team game. It's not just calcium. Um, you need, sure, you need a certain amount of calcium, but it does look like it's about 700 milligrams of total calcium through your diet to uh, avoid increased risk of fracture. There's a big study out of Sweden that um, was able to show that. But you can get as much calcium in your diet as you want. But if you don't have the stimulus, so exercise, that's going to hurt your bone mineral density a lot. Protein. Is going to if you're very very low in protein, that's going to hurt your bone mineral density. B12, again, hugely important for bone mineral density. Vitamin D, very important. So I think you get the idea. We, we've oversimplified bone health. Um, so we can probably focus a little bit less on just like this, having to hit at some crazy high calcium and understanding this is a whole lifestyle approach, doing the exercise, ticking off these nutrients of focus, eating a nice, diverse, healthy diet. You'll get lots of calcium at a plant-based milk that's calcium fortified and you're going to, you're going to get there. It's interesting. Like the kind of like entourage effect of all of these things in terms of calcium. I think I, I think I heard you say before somewhere that like countries that consume the most dairy products are often the most calcium deficient. And it's probably because we assume, Oh, I'll have like my glass of milk or yogurt and my calcium is taken care of. And so I won't do. Mm. you. Know. Yeah. I think um, what you probably heard me say was actually ca- that countries that drink the most milk have the highest rate of fractures. Okay. Oh yeah. And and so that's, but that, that, that really speaks to this idea of you can get all the calcium you want in the world, but if you don't have these other things in order, 
and then you know it's it's not going to be the kind of saving grace when it comes to to bone health it's so much more complex than that and it really is a team game um so we have simplified it and the dairy industry have done a great job of of saying you know calcium equals bone health it's one important part and and sure it's important but um there's, there's a lot more to it than that well, yeah, and they don't—they don't have the uh, the corner on calcium either, right? They would make it think that that is the only place you're going to get calcium from. Yeah, which we know um, is not the case, and whether it's calcium in soy products um, or across the the sort of plant foods in general, the the amount of calcium that you will absorb from plant foods is as good as as it is in in dairy, as a percentage, or in certain circumstances, much higher. So, um, you know, that's also quite reassuring. Yeah. And one that um, is relatively new to my kind of zeitgeist of things is, is iodine, something that I, I really didn't consider in my nutrition game in the house that I'm building in my body. Um, so do you get that from your salt, from your sea vegetables? What, where's the best way to get um, iodine in your life? There's a few different ways. Um, you can you can have... Uh, Iodized salt is is one quite easy way, and I think that 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 one's probably perfectly fine for for most people. Unless you have hypertension, high blood pressure, then might not be the best um, option for you. Um, it is important to to note that uh, vegetarians and vegans do tend to have a higher incidence of iodine deficiency, um, and I guess that's the purpose of nutrients of focus. Omnivores have their own nutrients that they're more likely to be. Um, low in or deficient in and the same exists for for those eating a, a plant-based diet um, so um, iodine from either iodized salt you can supplement 150 micrograms a day if you take like a multi i, I actually personally myself have a multivitamin um, and that contains iodine in it um, and then the other option is dulse wakame um, nori flakes so seaweeds um, and um, you've got to be a bit careful with some of those just because if you consume too much, you might ingest too much iodine um, and there is a, a an upper limit where it can be toxic. So um, it's a, it's another option. I write in the book kind of how much of each of those you may want to have. Okay. And then uh, what about iron, selenium, and zinc? Those are the final three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of these, most people will be fine getting through their diet. Um um, well, not most people, I should say, with iron. Iron is the number one deficiency in the world, um, and it affects women of childbearing age more so than, than others. And um, that one, you're, you're, you're going to get a lot of iron through a plant-based diet, more iron in a plant-based diet than in an omnivorous diet, but it is a different type of iron, and the absorption is less than would be found with heme iron. Um, but there are some big benefits of that. That's a whole nother conversation, but that's actually protective in, in a number of ways. Um, but the reality is a number of women in particular do struggle with their iron levels. So there are first a few things you can do. If your levels are just a little bit low um, and, you, and your physician you're working with or dietitian thinks that you can get there through diet, then probably want to lean more into some of the iron rich foods like your um, legumes for example are a really good source of, of iron but doing things like adding sources of vitamin c so pairing um, putting some lemon juice or lime juice or bell pepper capsicum in with these meals 
is going to increase iron absorption, as will cooking with onion and garlic. So onion and garlic actually enhances iron absorption. Um, and then uh, on the other side, just trying to avoid things like red wine, uh, like coffee and tea around the time of your meal. Um, there are various components that are in those beverages that will block iron absorption. Um, so that's, again, is for someone who has, say, had an iron test and is struggling with their iron. If your iron levels are fine, you don't need to think about that. Right. Just keep doing what you're doing. Um, so that's iron. Um, you could as well, if your levels were not improving through dietary changes or were, were at a level where it was not going to respond to just diet, then having a supplement, um, particularly for many women of childbearing age, is going to be one of the most effective ways forward. Um, and that's going to be for omnivores or those following a plant-based diet. Um, and then selenium and zinc. Um, selenium, Brazil nuts are, if you um, are not allergic to, to nuts, Brazil nuts are a great source of selenium. Throw one or two of those into your um, smoothie or snack, and that's going to, uh, along with all the other foods um, that you eat over the day, is going to easily get you to the selenium recommendations. Um, and zinc, zinc is uh, similar to iron, there are there are ways to enhance zinc absorption. So garlic and onion also will enhance zinc absorption. Um, most people eating a, a plant-based diet, if they're sticking to whole foods and, and not a lot of ultra-processed foods, will get more than enough um, zinc in their diet. But a lot of that will come through nuts and seeds and even whole grains. But um, I've got a couple of tables in the book that kind of list through a lot of the different foods that people may want to to think about there. Um, but I think to summarize that, B12 um, and iodine are probably the biggest two for plant-based folks to really, really focus on. And then the rest of those, um, you know, fine-tune your diet and depending on, on your circumstances, you may want to supplement or you may not need to. Amazing. Yeah. Simon, you're, you're an incredible source of information and, uh, we're so grateful for, for folks like yourself that are, you know, making plant-based uh, accessible, exciting, um, and kind of, you know, setting a path for, for hopefully a, a healthy planet, um, you know, having healthy individuals eating healthy foods, uh, the domino effect is a healthy environment, um, you know, giving animals the capacity to to live, live their best life while we live our best life and, mm -hmm. and giving our our planet uh, you know a fighting chance um being mindful of time like we don't want to go really into we'll, we'll save the environmental conversation for for another time uh maybe when you come up to come up to vancouver sometime yeah that sounds good but we'd love to to wrap with a couple random fire questions that are just quick kind of okay. off the cusp um, I'm a juice guy and I see you've been drinking a juice while we've been zooming here. Uh, what's in mm. today? This is, uh, green juice. It's pretty basic. I think there's, uh, cucumber, uh, apple, uh, what else is in there today? Um, there's some green, dark leafy greens in there as well. Some lemon juice, um, fairly basic, but, um, something that I've kind of been doing a little bit more, uh, recently. And I often get I know I don't want to elaborate on this too much, but you can, as you can probably tell, I can talk for days on this stuff. Um, we can save juice versus smoothies for another conversation. How's that? Okay. Okay. We can go, we can go deep on juice and smoothies. <laughs> 
got the restaurant here. The, the juice truck started out as a food truck. It was juice and smoothies and yeah. into yeah. you know, the six, six plus locations you've got here. And yeah, juice and no, I think I think they're, they're both great. Um, there are some considerations for different people, but I think they're both amazing. I, I personally have both of them. So amazing. Uh, Netflix, anything you're crushing these days? Oh, that's good. I'm watching a Marilyn Monroe um, documentary at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, which is interesting. I watched Bad Vegan. Um, did you see that? I haven't watched it, but that was like her cookbooks were like so inspirational to when we started the juice track. Like they were so different mm. next level to everything out there. So I need to check it out. She was, she was definitely an inspiration of ours. Yeah, no, she's... Um, certainly a very talented individual. Um, I have a few mutual friends with, with them and, and um, I'll, I won't spoil the, the documentary, but it's very, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Um, okay. We'll come, we'll jump back to some food ones, but uh, maybe, maybe just like a cheeky little random fire. Do plants really include all nine essential amino acids? They do. Every plant includes what? all nine essential amino acids. At varying levels, but um, yeah, they're they're all there. Amazing. All right. Um, in a sentence, tell us why you're optimistic for the future health for us humans and the future health of the planet. Okay. <laughs> in a sentence, that's the hard part here. Um, okay. It could be a, it could be a run-on sentence. A run-on. Uh, look, I, I think I just have to look to the youths and and where. Um, you know, what's important to them and what they're voicing, what they're speaking about and seeing corporations and, and larger companies that have been around for a long time changing their ways because of that in response, um, that gives me a lot of hope. That's awesome. Maybe, maybe c- continuing on that vein, um, people like yourself, uh, there's so many amazing educators about, you know, the the future of the plant place movement and what that can do for ourselves, but also the environment. Do you hope that, um, or see an importance in terms of like legislation when it comes to plant-based diets and the, the companies or ways that we support, you know, different industries from uh, even like the government level? Yeah. I, <laughs> so it, it might seem a, a little bit, um, at odds with, uh, my kind of mission behind writing my book. Um, I think education is important, um, but ultimately, unless the food environment shifts, we won't see the massive changes that we need to to change both public health, but also to influence environmental health, um, animal welfare in the ways that we we need to. And I think the to 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 sort of summarize this in a short and sweet way, you know less than 5% of people follow the dietary guidelines, for example. And so we could have the best dietary guidelines in the world, which Canada arguably do. Um, But the fact of the matter is if the food environment does not show up in a way that makes it actually easy to, to follow them, then those dietary guidelines don't really mean much at all. Um, So we have to, to make it easy for people to eat in a way that is healthy that is good for the environment, um, that is more ethical. And in order to do that, the environment needs to show up differently, which is going to require legislation. 
Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that's going to be an, an important piece. And there are little things happening around the world where, where people are working on, on changing that. And, um, so it's certainly a conversation that's being had. Right. Okay. I got an Australian specific one, cricket or rugby? Neither football, oh. different sport. Different sport altogether. I'm a, I'm, I'm a big AFL, which is Australian rules football, so that's a different code over here. Um, but I'm from Melbourne, so um, Melbourne tends to be a football state and then New South Wales, which is actually where I, I live now, is more of a rugby state. Okay, gotcha. I had a, I had a coach uh, from Melbourne when I was okay. in high school, and he coached us rugby uh, because that was the sport that we kind of played up here in Canada. Like you could have yeah. But during our like uh, PE class, he he made sure every year he taught us and gave us a whole unit on Aussie. <laughs> actually, I'm actually, and it's so fun. And we get to be here now. We just, oh, oh, really? Like the women's league. But yeah. So fun to watch. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I will say I do enjoy watching the international uh, rugby games. They're always fun. Yeah. We have a big Aussie uh, population here with Whistler. Uh, yeah, for sure. More Australians than yeah. Mm-hmm. I've heard that. Australia North, we often call it. Yeah, when you yeah. <laughs> we uh, we we have a habit of of traveling and making other places our home. That's <laughs> great. Uh, Dean, do you have any more? Do you want to do our closer? Yeah, you know what? Let's let's uh, let's land let's land it here. I mean, there's so much more we could say. Um, you know, just continue just to pour on our, our appreciation for you. Just that the the wealth of knowledge that you have and carry is so good. And I mean, we've got our our notes and things, and there's more there's more left. Uh, so hopefully for for round two. But we're just so appreciative of you. Um, similar to you, Simon, like with your, you know, podcast, I know you've recently kind of re- revamped and rebranded a little bit, but like plant proof or the proof is in the plants and showing, you know, showing up week, week after week and, and sharing your knowledge, whether it's your Instagram posts or obviously your book, your podcast, like you are just bringing back that message that the proof is there. We just have to look and, and understand it. And similar. So when we named our podcast, we were intentional with what we wanted to create and see in the world. And so we call it a little more good knowing that, you know, that's what we want to put out and experience and see for everyone in our communities, both near and far. But we're always interested when we have a guest on, what does that, what does that phrase mean to you or how does it resonate or, or what does it conjure for you a little more good? I think it speaks to the fact that you, you don't have to be someone with a huge community out there to have a big effect. Um, and you know small changes small things can have huge ripple effects um i'm often asked by people in that are you know within their family or within their local community how can they influence other people and one of the things i say is just to 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 lead by example as as your kind of first um, mode of action and and i think that when i say that i'm i'm referring to this idea that that if you do a little bit more good and, and people see that, um, you know, people are, f- are far more likely to be influenced by what you do than what you say. Mm-hmm. And that can, you know, often that's even more so in a family where saying things and having conversations can be tough. Um, but I think just, just in a general sense, um, being cognizant how you live and those little changes you make to align your actions with your values 
people around you feel that. And we all know if you're around someone who is making those little changes to, to do a little bit more good, you actually, you, you know, in their presence, this person is aligned. They are, they are an aligned person and you want that for yourself. You want to tap into that. So, um, you know, I would probably bring it back to that. Mm. So good. That's awesome, man. Thank you very much. Simon. Pleasure. We're so grateful for you. Thank you for, for going along with us and hanging out with us. Uh, we know uh, time is our biggest currency, so we're, we're so grateful for you. And, uh, you know, we wish you all the continued health and all the continued success. And we'll be following and, and cheering uh, loudly from our, our Canadian corner up here. Yeah. Thank you, guys. It's been a, a pleasure. I'm, I'm super grateful for, for coming on. I've really enjoyed this. And um, maybe next time we do it in person, we have a juice or a smoothie and um, continue. I hope so. I love it. Thanks so much, Simon. Thank you, guys. Okay. What do you think, Dina? Man, so good. I love how we could just kind of throw anything at him. And he, like take it and run with it and and <laughs> drop the knowledge really yes. right it's just so it's it's incredible people like people like simon are so incredible with just the knowledge that they have um like i said not just experiential like this is what i did but listen these are the studies and this is what we know and pros and cons and the best kind of best practices for achieving this result or that result it's just it's so impressive and it just speaks to not only who he is as you know uh, an educator but as someone who is a nutritionist and i, I mean masters in uh, nutrition sciences so he's got that like science background that like really really backs up um what he's saying and won't just put out stuff that's like oh anecdotally it might work and so i just feel like it's such an important resource for people to have who are a plant-based and trying to like look and see how they can be the better more healthier version of themselves or for be who you know people who are are curious about it looking about it or even skeptical can hear you know not just like the compelling argument oh it's more compassionate but like really the science behind it and so yeah so grateful for him and just uh, all that he brought to the table on this conversation amazing yeah i felt like i was that like keen student with my hand up the whole podcast being like simon simon what about this you know yeah. just endless questions totally um yeah if you enjoyed that definitely as you mentioned check out his podcast the proof because mm -hmm. it is an endless source of incredible information as well as his book the proof is in the plants and uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, the best way to support a little more good is to share, review, write a little review in uh, wherever you listen to this, whether that's on Apple or Spotify or Google. Um, share it with a friend. Um, that's the best way you can support us is spreading the message. And the more reviews, the more places the show's up. So grateful for all of you listening and getting to this point. Looking forward to a more, a little more good with you next week. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Keep well. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.